Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Science of Beauty, a podcast from Allure. I'm Michelle Lee, the Editor-in-Chief. And I'm Jenny Bailly, Executive Beauty Director. On this podcast, we're going to be diving into the science behind beauty and the products that we are always talking about and testing here at Allure. And today on the podcast, we're going from the scalp to the hair all over the rest of your body. A lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about body hair. Where is it? How much of it is there? How do we get rid of it? And maybe not enough time appreciating what it does for us. So today, our first guest is going to take us way back in time to explain why we've got body hair in the first place. My name is Nina Jablonski. I'm the Evan Pugh University Professor of Anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University. And what are your areas of research? I'm a biological anthropologist. I study human evolution, and particularly I study how humans have adapted to changes in the environment through time. I'm really interested in why humans look the way they do. Millions of years ago, as far as we know, we were covered in hair. Is that accurate? Yes. I mean, Human beings are primates, and primates are mammals, and mammals are covered with hair because hair serves a wide variety of really important functions. It keeps mammals warm. It protects their skin from a lot of external influences, from abrasion, from water, from chemical attack, all sorts of things. And so hair is really, really useful. Most mammals, including our closest relatives, have hair. So our mostly absence of hair is really remarkable. Can you talk a little bit about this absence of hair? Do we know at what point humans started to lose hair and why? Can you just walk us through that evolution? Humans, like other primates, really need to keep a constant body temperature. It turns out that we aren't really very sophisticated as primates at being able to lose body heat. Let's say, you know, dogs can pant. Other animals can lose heat in really interesting ways in their circulatory system. But primates basically are stuck with being able to only lose excess heat through their skin. And the most efficient way to do this is through evaporation. The short story is that we lost most of our body hair probably beginning around 2 million years ago, when we started to have a really active lifestyle. Our ancestors were not couch potatoes. They weren't just sitting around or hanging around in trees. They were active, walking, running, really, you know, really, really active creatures. And under these conditions in equatorial Africa, where all our ancestors came from, it was hot. And when they engaged in a lot of exercise, they built up a lot of body heat. And what happened, and this was such a cool transition, is that we see our skin becoming increasingly more naked. And instead of being covered with body hair, it's covered with more and more sweat glands that help us lose heat through the evaporation of sweat. So basically, over what we think was probably about a half million year period, we went from being pretty thoroughly hairy to pretty much completely naked, except for hair on a few parts of our body. 
I'm glad it went that way instead of panting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do lose some excess heat through breathing heavily, but that can't possibly do enough to keep your whole body and particularly to keep your very temperature-sensitive brain cool. We have these really big brains, and in order to keep them cool, we need to keep our whole body temperature within a fairly narrow window, and whole body sweating really does it for us. But why do we have hair on our heads then still, if our brains need to be cooler? It turns out that especially really curly hair is remarkably effective at protecting the scalp and the brain from excess heat, and it also allows the evaporation of sweat very efficiently. So it's this remarkable, important structure. Now, we kept hair on the tops of our heads and a few other places. And the reason for us keeping hair on these other places isn't the same. And that's one of the fascinating things about this story. So why, for example, do we still have, you know, some people have more than others, but hair on our legs, under our arms? We especially have noticeable hair under our arms, we have pubic hair, and we have eyebrows. And these little collections of hair are really important. Armpit hair and pubic hair are probably important because they helped to disperse odor molecules. Now, Today, most of us try to get rid of all of this odor that's produced in our armpits and in our pubic regions. But those odor molecules, at least some of them, are really important for communication about our state of reproductive status and our attractiveness. And so being able to sort of broadcast those molecules using hair probably was useful. Our eyebrows are really important in allowing our expressions and moods to be determined or communicated from one person to another, even at a great distance. So we have these little collections of hair that are really important for reasons that no one has really studied very carefully. So now I guess we don't need, you know, since we do You know, a lot of women remove the hair under their arms or do, I feel like the Brazilian bikini wax has fallen out of favor, but there's still some grooming of hair going on down there. So how are we sending those signals? Well, a lot of them end up getting sent through other means. Text messages. (laughs) Exactly. Text messages, language, we use a lot of other signals and we rely less on scent than we used to. But there's no doubt, you know, that you get close to somebody and you like the way they smell or you don't like the way they smell. And that still can be a really, really salient and important signal. And it can determine a lot of your attraction to a person. Interesting. So can you tell, I guess, based on where somebody originated from, are there differences in how much body hair someone would have? 
there are tremendous differences. And even within a larger population of people, you can have some individuals that have more hair or less hair. Generally, we see less visible body hair on people of East Asian and African ancestry but there is still a lot of variation in this. And what is so interesting is that even though those hairs may be invisible, they're actually still there. There are tiny, tiny, tiny hairs coming out of hair follicles all over our body. And these turn out to be remarkably important for us because they allow our skin to heal properly because they are little repositories or banks of special cells called stem cells that help us to heal our wounds. Wait, we have stem cells in our leg hair? We have stem cells in the follicles of the hairs. Our body is covered with these follicles. Now, most of these little body hairs are no longer serving sort of their original function, but the follicles are still monumentally important to us. So that's why we didn't get rid of them entirely. We retained them with sometimes almost invisible hairs because the follicles and the stem cells themselves were so crucially important to our ability to recover from injury. Fascinating. Interesting. At what point did society begin to prize smooth, hair-free skin? The concern with having women being particularly smooth does seem to be more of a, of a modern, let's say, last 500 years practice. Uh, and that is really interesting. You know, our ideas of what femininity and masculinity are, are very much today based on sort of hairiness or lack of hairiness. And these notions are really very recent. We have, through communication with one another, really established almost a globalized practice of removing hair to make women especially look very smooth and have baby-like skin, and for just the opposite, for men to retain their body hair, and certainly with facial hair, there's a lot of masculinity signaling that's associated with facial hair. We tend to think, oh, these, these signals are very ancient, these practices are ancient. They're not. This is a pretty recent obsession people really want to be accepted. And especially young adults really want to be accepted. So unless you can really sort of change that acceptance meter, you won't change the practices. I do feel like it's changing, though. The younger generations, there's definitely this movement now towards letting all your body hair just grow. Yeah. It's like, yeah, body hair is beautiful. It's natural. Let it grow. Or if you want to be completely smooth, yeah, that's cool too. I think getting away from the tyranny of a single standard is a wonderful freedom that we now see among many young people. And I think social media, while it's certainly not always such a great thing in terms of promoting unrealistic body standards, it has had some really powerful moments in terms of normalizing and even celebrating body hair. You know, people dyeing their armpit hair, 
combing glitter through it. A lot of people shared photos under the free your pits hashtag a few years back. It was kind of this feeling like after all this time, let's not just grow out our armpit hair, but let's play it up. It's really wonderful when people examine those social norms and they say, hold on, who started this? This is a bunch of nonsense. And they realize, hey, I can be a beautiful person inside and out without following these practices. It is tremendously liberating. Dr. Jablonski, do you think that the pandemic has changed how we treat our body hair? I know for myself, I definitely have been shaving way less. I think people feel a lot of freedom now. I think people feel like, okay, yeah, I want to be clean and I want to be self-respecting, but I don't need to go through this whole performance of taking hair off my body or decorating myself in a particular way. I think a lot depends on who you're still performing for, who's in your immediate household, who are you dressing up for? Are you dressing up for only yourself, for another family member, for a large extended family. People are gauging their behavior according to their audience. And for the most part, our audiences have shrunk. We're seeing so many fewer people and we're basically only seeing one foot of them on the Zoom screen. So when people are concentrating their attention, they're certainly concentrating on what their faces look like and necks as opposed to what the rest of their bodies look like. I'm totally still shaving my chest hair, (laughs) but my legs, not so much. Yeah. And, And also you realize in your heart of hearts, this is a waste of time. And I don't have to perform in this particular way right now. And so why should I take this time to do this thing that is sort of socially acceptable and allows me to cleave towards a social norm? I'm doing just fine. I remember once Dr. Jablonski interviewed you about grooming and it started with some colleagues who were talking about how before their periods, when they were feeling kind of hormonal and stressed, they would pluck their eyebrows more or do more stuff to their hair. And you were talking about even like our primate relatives picking at each other's hair as like a soothing mechanism. Yeah. Grooming one another is very, very soothing. I mean, today, although we don't think of ourselves as primates grooming one another, we love to go to have a massage or to have our head shampooed or worked over by a thoughtful hairdresser. It is physiologically comforting. It feels really good. Our stress hormone levels go down. We feel better. And this is a legacy from the millions of years during which we groomed one another's hairy bodies to help get rid of parasites. But also, this is a mode of communication that we've used for millions of years in our deep history. Basically, primates get along by touching one another's bodies. We sit close to one another. We touch one another to build affiliations. And yes, 
true friendships because we live a long time and we live in stable groups. So doing this kind of grooming, even the modern kind of grooming that we call going for a massage or going to the hairdresser is super important because it helps to lower our stress and it helps to make us feel a whole lot better. This was fascinating, Dr. Jablonski. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. We're going to go groom ourselves now. I'll have my husband. My husband will groom me. He'll apply the the glitter (laughs) on my armpit hair. (laughs) Do it. We'll report back. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. I have a newfound appreciation for my body hair. I know. Who knew it did all that? Okay, well, after the break, we're going to talk to a dermatologist who knows body hair up close and personal on her patients' bodies and her own. We're back and we're here with Dr. Kavita Marawala, who's been thinking about body hair since long before she became Dr. Marawala. Hi, my name is Kavita Marawala. I'm a board-certified dermatologist, and I think it's important that I preface it by saying I'm also an Indian woman, so when you talk to me about body hair, I feel like I have a lot of science knowledge, but also a lot of personal anecdotes that I can share. (laughs) I I love the personal anecdotes. Are our bodies completely covered in hair, and about how many hair follicles do we have all over our bodies? So our bodies are completely covered in hair. We actually have about 5 million follicles on our body. Turns out you're born with all of them. You don't develop more as you get older. And what's interesting is that there are three areas of your body that don't have hair, your palms, your soles, and the red of your lips. But everything else has hair. And so those areas, so we've learned, um, Dr. Marawala, over our Science of Beauty journey, that oil glands are attached to hair follicles. So like the palms of your hands and the soles of your feet and your lips don't have oil glands, although your feet get sweaty. So you can have glands that produce sweat, but don't necessarily produce sebum. So like you'll never get pimples really on your palms and soles. And the pimples that you get around your lips are actually from the skin part of your lip that touches that vermilion border. And you can get clogs along the border, but you won't get pimples on your lip itself. And what about the parts of our bodies where many humans do have noticeable hair? Armpits, pubic hair, back, legs. Is a lot of that hair about regulating our body heat? Armpit hair is thought to help with thermoregulation. And the type of hair that's there is considered more terminal hair. It's like thicker and coarser. It's also thought that armpit hair helps wick away sweat. So that's why, in theory, we have it. But the hair on your face, for example, is vellus hair. And androgens or your hormones play a role in how that hair becomes when it gets older. I want to go back to vellus versus terminal hairs. I think I'd heard those terms before, but I'm not super familiar with them. So like the hair on your head is is what? Vellus? Terminal? So when you're born as a baby, some babies are covered in like little, what we call lanugo hair. They're like peach fuzzy everywhere. And then those fall off. As you get older, that hair matures and it differentiates. It's like, what is it going to be? It's going to be scalp hair. It's going to be facial hair. So the hair on your face always remains vellus and it does get impacted by hormones, but differently in men and women. And the hair on your head and other parts of your body is considered terminal hair in that it can grow thicker. 
But for example, in women, we don't get terminal hair on our chest, really. We don't really get that much terminal hair on our stomachs. And that's all impacted by hormone effect on hair follicles. So when we're born, we're covered in only vellus hair. In lanugo hair. And then that falls off and you get vellus hair. So if you have a vellus hair and then you go through puberty and you have a lot of androgens or testosterone, it changes the hair follicle to grow a hair that's coarser and thicker. So that's why men grow beards and women typically don't. So vellus hair can become terminal hair? Yes. So vellus hair, if you do a lot of shaving, for example, on your face, in some ethnicities can actually turn into terminal hair. And so you can end up wanting to remove one or two hairs. And the next thing you know, you've removed it in the wrong way. And now you've got really coarse hair on your face. Oh, wait, I thought that was a myth. So if you shave, it can actually change the hair? On the face, yes. On the body, no. Wait, so on the face, it can become thicker, but it does not on the body. Correct. It just feels like it's thicker on the body. Why is that? Because I think that facial hair follicles tend to respond to stimulus and hormones in a different way than the body does. We often think, oh, if you start shaving your legs, the hair grows back thicker. And that's not true. That myth is definitely a bust. It's just that hair, when it normally grows, is tapered at the end. And if you shave it, you're shaving it flat across the top. And so when it grows out, it grows out blunt. And so it feels like it's thicker. But if you let your, you know, winter fur go, you find that it actually ends up getting long, but also not so thick. And that's why, because it tapers out. But on the face, like for example, in Middle Eastern women, in South Asian women, you can get this sort of unexplained paradoxical, what we call hypertrichosis or like thickening of the hair. And that can happen with shaving, but it can also happen with laser hair removal if you're not using the right device. But it wouldn't happen with something like tweezing or waxing? Tweezing is interesting because both mechanisms are meant to really pull the hair from the follicle. Anytime you pull a hair from a follicle, it's always going to grow back. And so just a matter of like, how do you choose to do it? Are you doing it mechanically with a tweezer, like grabbing it and pulling it? Or are you doing it with something that you're going to layer on that will then harden and hold on to the hair that you then pull and rip off? So like waxing, sugaring. In all of those instances, hair typically, when it starts to grow back, does not grow back as thick. And the reason is because those ways of removing hair can sometimes scar the hair follicle. So on your hair, you don't want to do that because scarring your hair follicle means your hair won't grow back. But on the face, it's like that kind of quote unquote bad side effect you can use to your advantage because if you can make your hair not grow back, why not? For a lot of women though who have curly hair, when they pluck it, the hair, as it wants to grow out, because it's curly, it'll hit the skin surface and curl back under. And then they get these painful bumps along the chin. Men get that too. But in women, especially under the chin hair, they can get these brown bumps afterwards. So there's definitely some side effect there of trying to remove it. Or like the bikini bumps are the same thing happening, right? Exactly. Exactly. And for that, one of the tricks you can do is make sure you're exfoliating before you do any kind of hair removal. And then after hair removal, you want to make sure that you're continuing to exfoliate so that the hair has its best chance of breaking through that underneath surface and coming out of the skin. So Dr. Marwala, can we get high tech for a minute and talk about laser hair removal? It's been around a couple decades now. And would you say that it's really the holy grail of body hair removal? 
Yeah, one of the big myths that people have is that all hair can be removed with laser hair removal. And in 2020, that's definitely still not the case. Lasers really target a molecule in whatever they're removing. So if it's hemoglobin, if it's your blood cells, like if you have red vessels all over your face, that's what it's targeting. For laser hair removal, it's actually targeting the pigment in the hair follicle, which is in the hair. So if you hardly have any eumelanin, well, that means you hardly have any pigment, so your hair is blonde. So there's nothing really for the laser to target. Same thing if it's like a really light brown, you have less eumelanin. So the people who do the best with laser hair removal is if you're really fair and you have jet black hair, that person will do the best with laser hair removal because the difference is so stark. It just has to do with the technology, right? Like the optics of the laser being able to kind of see the spot. As you get darker or as your hair gets lighter, it becomes harder and harder to remove the hair. But can even a really dark-skinned person, because I remember when laser hair removal first became a thing and everyone was like, oh my God, this is a beauty miracle. But it really was too risky on really dark skin. So that is no longer the case. That is no longer the case. We have lots of lasers that make it very accessible to all different skin tones, but unfortunately not all hair colors. My uh, my favorite story to tell is my husband's also Indian. And um, when we got married, you know, obviously he knew me later in life and I had already had laser hair removal done. And so when we met, it was like a year into our marriage and I was looking for a razor and he was like, oh, he goes, where are your razors? I was like, don't you realize I don't shave my legs? He's like, what do you mean? I just thought you were hairless. And I was like, oh, sweet boy. You met me after I <laughs> after I already laser like laser hair removed everything. I was like, did you not notice I don't grow hair on my arms? He's like, oh, now that you mention it. I was like, yeah, sweet, but so misguided. <laughs> so we talked about lasers and there's definitely a movement towards people just letting body hair grow. But if you are so inclined to want to remove it, can you walk us through some of the other options that people have? Um, Maybe let's start with waxing. Yeah. So when you think about a hair follicle, it's like the little house that your hair lives in. And if you want to get rid of the hair, you have a few options. One, you can do it mechanically. So you can pluck it with a tweezer. Two, you can do it with a process that is trying to warm the skin so that the hair follicle opens up a little bit and then that wax solidifies around the hair. And so when you remove the wax, boom, you pluck, you basically rip the hair out of the follicle as you're doing it. And then you can do other ways of waxing. So some people use sugaring. Um, some people use different types of waxes that grip the hair better than others and then remove it. So some people do cold wax, some people do warm wax. It's all the same concept, basically, is you're trying to just remove that hair from its little housing. So Dr. Mirawala, what is the deal with depilatories? Now that's a totally different mechanism. So instead of grabbing onto the hair and pulling it, you're actually putting on a chemical that's dissolving the hair at the root so that you basically then just wipe it away. The hair is still in the follicle when you do a depilatory. The house is full. Yes, the house is still full. But the risk is that for some depilatories, just like you're saying the house is still full, if some of the chemicals get into the follicle, which they do, you can get a lot of skin irritation because your follicles get affected by the chemical. As a dermatologist, do you have a favorite hair removal option? For some people who 
actually shaving is something they almost have to do every single day because their hair really grows back quickly. I think there's nothing better than laser hair removal. It's an investment, but it's one that will last you a lifetime. Otherwise, I think waxing is great for certain parts of the body because it's longer lasting. And then I think for everybody who falls in between, shaving's perfectly fine. I mean, I'm a fan of you know using a good shaving cream to make sure your skin gets moisturized while you're doing it. And the process of shaving is almost like exfoliating that top layer of skin. So it's like a two for one. But if you wanted to do laser hair removal, like on your legs, and obviously I know that the pricing would vary throughout the country, but what's like a ballpark on what you'd be investing? Like how many sessions would you need and, and how much would it be per session? So typically you need four to five sessions, depending on how much hair you have. You space them out. So the first three are usually four weeks apart because the hair grows in cycles. So the first time you treat it, it treats the first set of hairs, then some more grow in, so you treat those. And that's usually every four weeks. After that, the hair actually starts growing in much less frequently. So you spread it out to make sure you don't miss any that were just quiet and not growing back at that moment. So you spread it out to about six weeks. So usually maybe four to five sessions, you get an 80% reduction in hair. You might need to touch up once a year. Usually that cost is around $2,000, which I know sounds like a lot, but considering it's almost a lifetime of not shaving, I feel like you probably end up spending that much in razors and shaving cream if you think about it. And pain-wise, I find laser hair removal, I mean, compared to waxing, it's like nothing. Yeah. And you know, it's limited. Like waxing, you have to go all the time. Whereas this is like, all right, I'll do it a couple of times. And then as you do it, truly by the third session, hair is so much less. And also the density of it is better. Like you'll find the hair that actually grows out is really thin. And so it feels fine and it doesn't hurt. And can we talk for a minute about pubic hair removal? So I arrived in New York in the late 90s. It was the height of the J sisters phenomenon. I don't know if everyone, and I feel like in the Sex in the City episode where Carrie, you know, where all of her pubic hair was taken off in the waxing incident, I don't know if they named it as Jay Sisters, but I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be Jay Sisters. So it's this salon on 57th Street, the seven Brazilian sisters, you know, brought the Brazilian bikini wax to America. And it's just what is like a woman in her early 20s in Manhattan, like it was just apparently pubic hair had become this thing. You should no longer have it. Have. Right. And like, you know, like the, sh- the sheep that I am, I was like, okay, I guess I'll get rid of this. Anyway, so I did that for a few years and then I decided, okay, well, I'll do laser hair removal. And honestly, I think I did too much. So this is just a cautionary tale to you young women out there. Now that I'm in my mid 40s, You know, like, I don't know, going through childbirth with like a landing strip. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're talking about that. We have the same conversations with our patients. We have young girls coming in and they want a full Brazilian laser hair removal. And so you have to say to them, like, you know, this is permanent. You can't grow that back. And are you sure that as your body changes and your skin ages, there's no going back. Yeah. I think it is starting to swing back because I, I think we've definitely seen, even just product-wise, more products now to care for pubic hair. Yeah. I think it's, I see that trend now in the last two years, people are more towards staying a little bit uh, of, of uh, shaping there rather than full gone. 
But you are seeing in your practice, like, no one wants to take it all off anymore. That's not a thing anymore. People still do. Some of the younger girls still do. And we try to talk them away from that. But there are definitely still a good number of people who still want to do that. But I think women who come to laser hair removal in their 30s or even 40s are more interested in just bringing the shape of the triangle in more so that they don't have to shave for bathing suit season. Got it. And what are some medical conditions that might cause body hair to grow excessively? There's one medical condition that is called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. It's actually intensely underdiagnosed. One in 14 women will have it, which is a lot. And I feel like we don't talk about it very much, but there are different clinical ways that it shows up. And so not everybody has all the classic symptoms of it. The classic symptoms are like really hard to control acne, heavy periods, um, history of having trouble with pregnancy, hair that's on the chin, on the chest, on the abdomen, by the belly button, coarse hair, almost beard-like hair on the face, and then endocrine abnormalities. But there's a whole spectrum of it. So I think a lot of women are not diagnosed and they just think that they're very hairy, but they could potentially have some PCOS underlying. Oh, and then usually ovarian cysts, but not everybody has that. For me, when I see people with laser hair removal, if after four or five sessions, they're really not getting anywhere, we do an endocrine workup because that means there's something else going on that's not making the hair stop growing. So it's really common. All right, great. We're going to get into some listener questions. Hi, I'm Emily, and I recently started growing out my armpit hair after mm, shaving my whole entire life. And I was wondering, does the presence of hair make my underarms smellier? Or is that just me? And if it's not just me, is there anything I can do about it? There is this condition that can happen to armpit hair that it can actually have these concretions from bacteria that do make your armpits smell more. But if you're somebody who washes regularly, armpit hair does not make your armpits smellier. The smell is from bacteria that live there normally. And that's really the difference between antiperspirants and deodorants. So deodorants are really there to just cover up the smell of the bacteria that live in your armpit, whereas antiperspirants stop you from perspiring there. The idea is that if you're putting a fluid into an area where there's already bacteria that should be there, it can create an odor. So that's why antiperspirants are a little bit more effective in stopping smell than just deodorants, which are there to cover it. This is Liz, and I'm uh, asking for a friend. Why do chin hairs come in such random places and grow in so thick and so dark? Chin hairs are hairs that can actually turn terminal, and... They're the ones you see the most frequently when you're driving in the car and you've got that bright daylight. You're like, oh my God, what is that going on on my face? And I don't know a single woman of a, at a certain point in their life that doesn't get one or two random stray hairs. They happen. It's normal. You can pluck them. If you find yourself plucking them every day, stop. It's time for laser hair removal because you're going to end up doing more damage to the hair or the skin on your face than you are going to be able to actually make the chin hairs go away. I have a question related to that somewhat. Moles and scars, are you more or less likely to grow hair from those? So if you have a scar on your scalp, if the surgeon cut below the level of the hair follicles, the hair will grow back okay. 
if they cut the base of the hair follicles while they were stitching everything together, you'll have a line scar, the hair will not grow back. Typically on the body, because you're not paying attention to it, because those hairs in some areas are so minute that you're not looking for that, the scar won't grow hair back. Moles, however, if a mole is growing hair, it's actually a sign that it's benign because the hair follicle is part of the normal skin there and the mole can be growing in two layers of the skin. So that's normal and also a good thing. If you want to get rid of hair in a mole, it is safe to do laser hair removal on it, but make sure you see a doctor so that they can make sure that that mole is okay before lasering over it. And the other thing is that it will not change the mole if you decide to shave over it or wax that hair or pluck that hair. But in general, I think trying to laser hair removal hair in a mole is more effective and better. What about nose hair? <laughs> I remember an, an Allure editor years ago, we had a section called directory and everyone would go to different salons and spas and, and try things out. And she was going to try out a waxer and she was getting just a basic bikini wax. And the woman was, you know, down there doing the bikini wax and then kind of like looks up between her legs and, you know, this editor who will remain nameless is lying down. She was like, oh, and let me get your nose. And then she was like, before I knew what was happening, she had put wax like inside <gasps> each of her nostrils, you know, just at kind of the lower part of her nostrils. But still really? like, yeah. And then like yanked yeah. out the nose hair. Super painful, super common. They do it right at this part of the um, columella and they just rip the hair out. And A, that hair is always going to grow back. B, it's very painful. You can end up getting a staph infection there because staph lives in your nostrils. Mm -hmm. So now you're opening up those hair follicles by yanking those hairs out and you can get an infection super easy. So I tell people, nose hair is common, cut them so that you can't see them, but you need your nose hairs because those are really protecting your respiratory tract from inhalants. But if you have some that are really poking out at the bottom, cut them with a scissor, do not shave your nose hair because that will introduce cuts and bacteria. Don't do it. Okay. Thank you. This was illuminating. Oh my gosh. So fun. Thank you guys so much for talking to me today. Thank you. All right, Jenny, let's do our body hair product recommendations. What are yours? So I wax my mustache or up, upper lip hair, we could call it. <laughs> Probably like... I call it very dramatically my mustache. Your mustache. <laughs> Yeah, I wax my mustache probably about once a month and I use a Sally Hansen. It's like a microwavable wax. I feel like I've had the same little jar of it for like 10 years. Um, it, it's down to the end though. So I microwave that and I do that waxing myself. It's just like a peel off wax. It's not a strip. Okay. And then razor wise, I'm a big fan of the Gillette Venus Extra Smooth Sensitive. I think it has probably five blades, but it's, you know, it gets that really nice, smooth effect, but with, with no irritation. At least I haven't had any irritation. And I'm trying to be better about not just using soap when I shave and using a shaving cream. So I'm using an EOS one right now, but I also, frankly, it's winter and I'm not using anything very often. The first time I tried to shave my legs when I was a teenager, I did them dry. Oh, <laughs> I remember, I think I grabbed my dad's, like he had one of those like Norelco, you know, like electric razors. And I was like, well, maybe this will do the trick. And I really jammed it up. 
<laughs> he was not happy with that decision. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned your mustache because I actually forgot about that. I was thinking, oh, what do I actually use? And I just thought about razors, but I guess I use a lot of things because it sounds like I use a similar at-home wax, um, but I use the Bliss one. So you put it in the microwave and it's sort of like a wax that you just sort of like peel off. But honestly, I more than anything tweeze that area too, just because it's like, I feel like I can see those hairs pretty easily in the mirror. And so also with my eyebrows, I use my tweezerman, uh, the classic slant, I think, um, for a tweezer. And then for razors, I will be honest, I don't shave very often. I feel like I have to shave my armpits more than I shave my legs. I don't remember the last time I shaved my legs. What? And it's not to say that I just let it grow. My hair doesn't grow there anymore. You're so lucky. Yeah, it's really strange because, yeah, when I was younger also, I had pretty thick arm hair. And I remember my mom saying, oh, don't worry. Like when you get older, it's just going to get really thin and you won't be able to see it. And I was like, no, how can that possibly be? And I remember when I was younger, I shaved my arms because I was like, oh, let me just see what I can do. And I thought, you know, my mom scared me because she was like, oh, now it's going to grow back darker and, and bigger. And it really didn't. I think in my 20s and 30s over time, it just lightened to the point of where I can hardly see it now. So I hardly have any arm hair and I hardly have any leg hair too. Um, I will only shave once in a blue moon, um, at least with my legs. But I will say when I do shave, I love a Harry's razor. Um, I think men's razors are really good. And I love just having like the weight of like a really good metal razor. So I like those. I do. I have less hair on my legs than I used to. Like I feel like I used to get stubble like before I got out of the shower. I'd be like, well, that was a waste of time. So it's not quite that bad anymore. Yeah. No, I remember in college I had to shave all the time and I would definitely get a lot of stubble. And it's just, I'm not really sure why it just sort of, it's gone away. Because I also never, I never really waxed either. I waxed a few times, like went in for a professional wax. But the thing is you have to wait for the hair to really grow out so long again. So like during the summer, it didn't really work for me. But you mentioned the Harry's razor. Yeah. A lot of people at Allure love that We the People has this really beautiful like rose gold razor that's an investment, but then you're just replacing the blades. And I really, I feel like that's what I need to do next. So I'm not throwing away as much and it just like makes shaving feel like more of an experience. Oh, I also did years ago, I was at the Oprah magazine and we did a test of the Tria laser. It was an at-home hair removal laser. And so I did one armpit, but not the other to, you know, see if it worked and it did work. But so I have one hairy armpit that <gasps> I shave every few days. Wait, you're making re me remember there was an at-home thing. Uh, what was it called? And it would like yank out all your hairs. Do you remember this? The epilady. Yes, yes, yes. The epilady. The epilady. Yes, my mom had one of those and I it hurt like hell. So much, <laughs> so much. And I remember I was like, you, I tried to use it once I for like 30 seconds. I was like, ow, ow. <laughs> and my mom was like, well, once you've gone through childbirth, this is really not a problem. Because <laughs> I was like, mom, why are you using this torture device? Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I feel like waxing is so much better because you just rip it off as opposed to that. Like you could feel every single hair being torn out at the root. It was like that coil spinning <laughs> yes. around. Oh, the epilady. And what do you use for your brows? Do you shape your own brows? Yes. Um, but again, they don't 
grow like they used to, which is good. Yeah. I mean, I try not to touch them too much, but I'd say like once a week, I kind of just pluck. I use my my trusty tweezerman to get stray hairs. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe we should talk about too the opposite, right? So when you just mentioned um, that your brow hairs don't really grow, same with mine because I over tweezed when I was in my teens and 20s. And so I just started using Revita Brow by Revita Lash. And it's too soon because it's only been a couple of days, but I feel like it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, I, u- I do use Revita Brow. Um, and I should just use it every day. Like I'll use, you know, one tube and like use it every day. And you really do see a difference. And then I just don't restock and don't use it for a couple months. But yeah, it does really make a difference. I've never used Latisse. So the prescription eyelash growth, I think it's specifically approved for lashes, but people use it on their brows. Um, But I've never gone that far. Right. Me neither. Okay, that's it for this episode of The Science of Beauty. Join us next week when we'll be talking all about lasers. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Allure on Instagram at Allure, and I'm at Hey Michelle Lee, and Jenny is at J by E. B-A-I-L-L-Y. On our audio team, our lead producer is Carla Green. Executive producer is Shara Morris. Natalie Rin is our associate producer. And sound engineer is Scott Somerville. On the Allure team, the editorial leads are Soyini Driscoll and Diana Mazone. Lead researcher is Julie Risabudo. And project manager is Monica Perry. The theme music is by Asha Ivanovich. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum. Mm-hmm.